That's great. So if you've got your Bibles with you, we're looking at Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 to 17. Matthew chapter 1, verse 1 to 17, and that's page 963 in your pew Bibles. This is one of my personal favorite texts, um, and one that I often read to bring me comfort in times of trouble. This is the genealogy of Jesus, Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez, and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Animadab, Animadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, Boaz the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, Obed the father of Jesse, and Jesse the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, Solomon the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, Abijah the father of Asa, Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Jehoram, Jehoram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, Jotham the father of Ahaz, Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, Hezekiah the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Amon, Amon the father of Josiah, and Josiah the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the exile to Babylon. After the exile to Babylon, Jeconiah was the father of Shealtiel, Shealtiel the father of Zerubbabel, Zerubbabel the father of Abihud, Abihud the father of uh, Elikim, Elikim the father of Azor, Azor the father of Zadak, Zadak the father of Akim, Akim the father of Elihud, Elihud the father of Elysia, Elysia the father of Mathan, Mathan the father of Jacob, and Jacob the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, and Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called the Messiah. Thus there were 14 generations in all from Abraham to David, 14 from David to the exile to Babylon, and 14 from the exile to the Messiah. Uh, Ross was so, so grateful to me when I asked him to do the reading today. Uh, and he read it beautifully. Thank you, Ross. Um, some of you remember, um, I know some of you love sports, so I thought I'd tell you this story, that when I'd had some fairly significant surgery last September, as part of my recovery, I took the risk of, uh, of dying right there on the court playing Ross at tennis. And... Um, I beat him 6-3 in the first game because I was a bit worried about charging to the net for his drop shots or running to the back for his lobs in case, you know, it, it all went wrong. But I managed to beat him 6-1 in the second set and just so won the best of three sets. Uh, I, I have to tell you, uh, because it's only fair, that yesterday Ross beat me at tennis. 6-3, 6-3. And you know, if you ever ask yourself, you know, what, what changed? What's different? Uh, and I, I just a song came to mind. Love, love changes everything. You know? And, um, so, Ross, well done in the tennis, and that's good. And if you're wondering what that's all about, please forgive me. Okay. Ross won't. Let's, let's pray. In that case, yeah, let's pray. Father, we are human beings. And uh, not all of the things about us are always a blessing. Uh, sometimes, Father, uh, we don't live by our own standards, let alone yours. 
But the wonderful thing about you, Father God, is that you created us and you never, ever, ever stopped loving us. And Father, I want to thank you for that love that you've shown in Jesus Christ. And I want to thank you for his humanity today, Lord. And as we start a new series throughout the Gospel of Matthew, I want to pray for all of us, Heavenly Father, that you'll speak to us deeply and profoundly about the radical Jesus Christ and help us in the very best sense of an often misunderstood term to live radically for you. Not radicalized, Lord, but to live radically for you. We ask this now in the name of Jesus. Amen. We do start a new series, and you've got the cards in your pews. And um, the series is entitled The Radical Jesus, but I want to clarify something right at the word go. Uh, I'm grateful to Owen, who's put this artwork together with the help of the uh, Christian Ads Agency. And it's a beautiful piece of artwork. The subtext that Owen and I worked on is this. Gets to the root of the problem and is the root of the solution. And that's it about the radical Jesus. He gets to the root of the problem and he is always the root of the solution. A caveat that I want to bring you is this. Next week, I kick off this week by talking about Jesus' radical humanity. My friend, if he's still my friend, Ross, next week will speak on radical deity. And I want to give you a warning that when you push a biblical truth to an unbiblical extreme, you're, da- you're in danger of falling into something called a heresy. So let me give you an example. Today, if I push the humanity of Jesus Christ, who was fully and really and truly human, as you see, and I leave out the fact that he was also not only the Son of God, but God the Son then I would be speaking heresy to you. Next week, when Ross speaks on the radical deity of Jesus, if he pushed that extreme that Jesus is fully God to the extreme where he was only God and not fully human, then Ross would be preaching heresy, and neither of us want to do that. So whether you're listening right now or you're listening online, we, we just need to make that clear. You need to hear next week's message as well. Why this series and why now? Well, it seems to me that almost daily now... We are seeing reports on our media of the effects of what we could call radicalization. Do you know what I mean? Terrorism. Unspeakably evil acts perpetrated tragically in the name of religion. And let's just be clear that that has happened in the name of the Christian religion throughout history as well. So we've got to be very careful here. But it's never what Jesus wanted, as you'll see. So let, when we get to the root of this word radical, it comes from the Latin, the Latin radicula, which uh, is also linked to the word radix. And if ever at school you, you got jam jars and put blotting paper in them, and you put those broad beans in the blotting paper and you poured water, and ever done that little experiment with kids? Then you can see exactly how that broad bean uh, germinates by a, a little white thing pushing its way through the seed coat before eventually a little green thing, the shoot, starts pushing it way up the side. That is the first part of a plant. That's an embryonic plant in the seed. And the white thing that pushes through, the thing that comes out first is the root. But it's called the radical. From the Latin, radix. Radicula. And what it does is it gives the foundation for a young plant if you planted that seed into soil so that it could anchor 
and it could drop water and mineral salts so that as the green shoots pass through, pass through the surface, the plant's able to produce its food by photosynthesis. Just through sunlight and the water and the roots and, uh, and through carbon dioxide. It's quite miraculous. It's a wonderful thing to do with children. But that's the root of the word. It means literally root. Radical. The trouble is, it gets associated with other characters. Radicalization is very, very different to radical love. And as we're looking at, at the radical Jesus, we want to say, not all radicals are the same. Jesus radically loved others. Let's compare him, for instance, if that's even legitimate to do, with Che Guevara, the so-called hero of the Cuban Revolution. Che Guevara said this. He said, to send men to the firing squad, judicial proof is unnecessary. These procedures are an archaic bourgeois detail. This is a revolution. You don't need any court. Just line someone up against the wall and shoot them. Radical but evil. Radicalized evil. What about Osama bin Laden? He said it is better for anyone to kill a single American soldier than to squander his efforts on other activities. How detestable is that? But that's what he said. What about Adolf Hitler going back in history a little bit further? Hitler said it is not truth that matters through victory. Now we're in a world that says your truth is as good as my truth and that truth is okay and everyone has a different take on truth. There's no foundational truth. And yet when Pontius Pilate, about to, through cowardice, have Jesus handed over to be crucified, asked Jesus, and what is truth? Because Jesus said, he comes in the name of the truth. Pilate says, what is truth? And he didn't realize that standing opposite him was the embodiment of truth, the one who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. The embodiment of truth, Jesus Christ. The embodiment of love. What about Islamic State? They would claim that they are radically getting to the root of their scriptures in the Quran and that moderate Muslims who wouldn't interpret jihad this way, that interpret it as a struggle, like we all struggle in this world, a struggle against sin and a, a struggle against what the world throws at you. But no, for those ISIS so-called jihadi warriors, they would interpret the Quran in this way. If you cannot convert a person, you kill them. They're radicalized. They say that that is the radical truth. Now, I'm not a Muslim, I'm not an imam, I'm a Baptist minister. And I know that the truth is found in Jesus Christ. I just, I just want to say this. Jesus gets to the root of the problem and he is the root of the solution. Let me just give you an example, having spoken about all this warfare and this evil. Just go a few chapters on with me in Matthew's Gospel, if you've still got your Bible open, and look at Matthew chapter 5, verses 43 to 44. Listen to Jesus, a true radical. Matthew 4, 5, sorry, 43 to 44. Jesus speaking said this, You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor. That's a great commandment, isn't it? Love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. How radical is that? Are you serious, Jesus? Those who want to persecute us, we should pray for them. Those who are our, our enemies may be crucifying us or feeding us to the lions. You want us to love them? Yes. Now that's radical. That's amazing, radical love. That is a love that can change the world. It can change everything. 
But I want us to look at the radical humanity of Jesus in three ways. And you might uh, have to listen out really carefully because these three ways sound almost identical. If we're going to look at the radical humanity of Jesus, I want to suggest from this genealogy that we're, we're going to look at the fact that Jesus is fully human, that Jesus is really human, and that Jesus is truly human. And I hope we'll be able to establish that there's a difference between being fully human because everyone in this building today is fully human, really human. Everyone in this building is really human. But are we truly human? Jesus was all three. So let's look at this first aspect, Jesus being fully human. Meek and mild Jesus, as if the real Jesus overturned tables. He was radical for truth, for radical love. Much more of a revolutionary in that sense than Che Guevara. And in Matthew's gospel here, as we're looking at the whole of this gospel, or at least the first, most of this gospel, as we're in this series of 12 messages, why on earth would Matthew start a book with those 17 verses that Ross did heroically well to read as well as he did? Why would he? I mean, if you're a fan of John Grisham, or David Baldacci, or some of these... uh, Uh, modern uh, thriller authors, they would never start a book that way. They'd start with a punchy sign that gets you straight into a crime or a death or something exciting. They'd want to grip you because they want to sell more books. Why would Matthew start that way? Well, because Matthew's Jewish and he's writing mostly for a Jewish audience. Anyone else could read it, but he's a Jew writing for Jews and lineage, pedigree, genealogies are really important to Jewish people. They want to know who your ancestors are, where you come from, who's in the family line. So that's where he starts out. We'll come back to that. So in this genealogy of uh, of Jesus, when we go to verse 1, we hear that he's the son of David, the son of Abraham. And when we go to verse 16, we see that he's also the son of Joseph and Mary. So there's no doubting that Jesus is fully human. He's got ancestry. He's the son of David. His line can be traced back to Father Abraham. Do you remember that song? Father Abraham had seven sons. Do you remember it? Seven sons. Had, but you're not going to sing with me this morning, are you? Very good. Round of applause for them. The point is that Abraham was a father of this Jewish nation. The father of the nation. So Jesus' pedigree can be traced right back to this father of the nation. Right back to arguably the greatest king that ever lived. The king who united the tribes. Who brought the people together. Who was in charge of that kingdom. And the Messiah was always going to be a son of David. David's greater son. The Jews knew their scriptures and they knew that the Messiah, the one that we were longing for and waiting for, had to be in the line of David, had to be the son of David. So this is exactly what Matthew is doing. But you know, when you look at the ancestry here in all these complex names, you see that it's a checkered ancestry. It's great to talk about Father Abraham and this great King David, though not a perfect king, as I'll remind you in a moment, but actually it's a checkered ancestry and Matthew honestly includes it. Just look at verses 5 to 6 and then verses 6 to 7. Verse 5, Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab, remember Rahab. And Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth, remember Ruth. Obed, the father of Jesse. And then verse 6, and Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. 
It's a checkered ancestry. Why? Well, for a start, Rahab and also Ruth are both Gentiles. They're not Jews. What's Matthew trying to do? He's trying to remind people, including the Jewish people who would not only persist with this but enjoy this, like Ross, it's a, it's a text he clearly reads when he wants comfort. He mentioned that before he kicked off. The fact is that these Jews reading this would know, hang on, they're, they're, they're Gentiles. Why is Matthew emphasizing that? I'll tell you. Because God's love is for Jew and Gentile. God's love is for people, whatever the color of their skin, whatever their background, whatever their ethnicity, whatever their culture, God loves every human being on this planet. Amen? So the Jews were chosen, but they were chosen for a purpose, to bring forth the Messiah and to be a witness to all nations. They still have a role, a significant role. But you see, the thing about Rahab is, taking it a little bit further, she was not only a Gentile, she was a prostitute. Rahab was the one who helped the spies that Joshua, or Yeshua, a type of Jesus, Joshua sent spies to Jericho to find out whether they could have a victory over this great fortified city of Jericho when they're in the promised land. And Rahab, who was a God-fearer, Presumably to save herself from slavery or her children from starvation, she made a bad choice and became a prostitute, but she made a good choice and she helped the people of God. She chose the God they worshipped. So she's honoured here, this prostitute. But also, you know, when we read in verses 6 and 7 about uh, Jesse, the father of King David, and that David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife, we're reminded of a woman, do you remember her name, called Bathsheba? Beautiful woman. David should have been at war because it was a time of the year when kings go off to war, like you do if you're a king. And he's on one of the roofs in the palace and he's looking around and at not a great distance, clear enough for him to see how beautiful she was, Bathsheba just happens to be bathing naked on her roof at night. And David's eye was taken. Probably both of his eyes were taken. But although we laugh now, what happens to Uriah is not funny because David tries to get him to sleep with Bathsheba when he calls him back on furlough because Bathsheba has got pregnant from David's adulterous and illicit affair with her. Then he does something even worse, this man after God's heart. The great king does something even worse. He has Uriah exposed in the battle. It's murder, whatever way you describe it. He tells his general to pull back and leave Uriah there. Uriah is killed. God's grace is still that when David repents in sackcloth and ashes, when he's been confronted by a prophet who exposes his sin, he is absolutely heartbroken and repentant. And he still keeps Bathsheba as a wife and looks after her. And in God's grace, she gives birth to their son Solomon. And he's in the line with David. And Bathsheba, of Jesus, who is fully human. We see that there are 42 generations. 14 and 14 and 14 is 42. There are 14 leading up to the exile. Up to uh, the exile. And there's 14 on the return from exile. There's 14 that gives rise to Joseph and Mary, from whom comes Jesus. 42 generations. Now, there are way more than that, but you see it's a mnemonic aid. 14 by 14 by 14 is easy to remember, and 14 is twice God's perfect number seven. And the Jews liked this kind of thing. They could remember the ancestry, the genealogy is important. 
But there's also something massively significant. The Jews didn't have numbers. And the numeric value, because they used letters for numbers, a little bit like the Romans, the numeric value of David's name is very, very significant. The numeric value of David's name is significant. And that is the number that has been created there. So this proves that Jesus is the son of David, the Messiah who was to come. So he's fully human. He's got human ancestry. And there's Joseph and Mary. But he's also really human. He's not only fully human, he's really human. He's the real revolutionary. He's the love revolutionary. He is indeed Jesus who's called the Christ, Christos in the Greek, Messiah in the Hebrew, or anointed one in English. He is the Christ, the Messiah, the anointed one. And we read in verse 16 that Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, of whom was born Jesus, who is called the Christ. He is Christos. He's the the Christ. Jesus Christ. That variant of Yeshua, Joshua. The God who saves. God saves. That's Jesus' name. And he was born of Mary in my translation of verse 16. In your translation in the pews, it says, Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. And Mary was the mother of Jesus, who is called Messiah. In the earlier versions of the NIV, and that's the one I happen to be using... That's avoided. Listen, listen to my version, because it says here, uh, Joseph, the husband of Mary, who was born Jesus, who is called Christ. Whatever the right translation, this is what Matthew's trying to get at. Joseph was absolutely, in one sense, the father of Jesus. He raised him. He taught him carpentry in Nazareth. But in another sense, he wasn't the father, not biologically. Mary was, of course, the mother of of Jesus. How much more of a mother do you have to be that you nurture that child through the placenta in that amniotic sac within your womb and then you give birth? That is the Christmas story. But the true father of Jesus Christ is our heavenly father in heaven. And in fact, even that we have to be careful with because there's never a time when Jesus did not exist. But in his incarnation, to use that theological term, the first cell of Jesus Christ was planted in the womb of Mary by the power of the Holy Spirit. It was a great miracle. And Ross is going to deal with that next week. Because that makes Jesus fully God. But as a child growing and developing from an embryo to a fetus into the child that Mary gives birth to, if you like, the first cell of his existence was put there by the power of the Holy Spirit who hovered over her. This is an amazing miracle. But it doesn't stop the fact that Jesus is really human. The Christos, the Christ, the anointed one, was born of a virgin. And Isaiah chapter 7 verse 14, which we often read at Christmas, here is a sign that God will give the virgin will be with child. Now I used to teach sex ed and biology to A-level and O-level and GCSE. I can tell you that normally speaking, virgins do not have children. Now we can do all kinds of things nowadays with in vitro fertilization and that kind of thing. And thank God for that, for couples that have been helped to have children. But here's, here's the issue. This Jesus who is fully human is the one who was born as a human being, fully flesh. And he's the firstborn over all creation. The firstborn over all creation. Joseph had to be warned in a dream that Jesus was from on high, that Mary was with child through the power of the Holy Spirit. 
But nevertheless, Joseph was persuaded by that angel and by all that took place, the, the magi and the shepherds and the news they brought, to keep Mary as his wife and to raise Jesus as his son. But it, when we get to Colossians in the New Testament, we find out who this Jesus really is. Let me just go there for us. Colossians in the New Testament. Chapter 1, I've got a typo on the PowerPoint, forgive me. It's chapter 1, not chapter 2, verses 15 to 20. It says, He, this is Jesus, is the image of the invisible God. He's the firstborn over all creation. For by him all things were created. Now, that seems like a conflict, doesn't it? He's the firstborn over all creation, but by him all things were created. That's why includes Mary and Joseph. It includes all things that ever existed. How can that be? It could only be if Jesus pre-existed his birth, his incarnation. And he did. He's the Alpha and the Omega. He's without beginning and without end. He's the first and the last. He's been with the Father. Always. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. For by Jesus all things were created, things in heaven, on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for him. Jesus is before all things, and in Jesus all things hold together. And he's the head of the body, the church. He's the beginning and firstborn among, from among the dead, so that in everything he might have the supremacy. And listen to this, folks. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, in Jesus. And through him, through Jesus, to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making his peace through his blood shed on the cross. Can I ask you a question? Are you in the balcony or are you right down here? Are you reconciled with God? Now, as I look round, I know most of you here, most of you I know to be Christians. Then you are reconciled with God. You've invited Jesus into your life. You've surrendered your life to Jesus as Lord of your life because you want to receive the Holy Spirit, receive forgiveness, receive God into your life and have a relationship with God to be reconciled with Him. That was only possible because of Jesus Dying our death, paying the price, shedding his blood, making atonement. These are all the different words and phrases that we use, but it's captured here. God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through Jesus' blood shed on the cross. You see, there's not a human being on this planet that God doesn't love. That's why God would even have you pray for ISIS jihadi warriors. Why? Because God would rather have them turn and understand that Jesus is much more than a prophet. Wow. Wow. And yet the prophets clearly told about his coming. This one who, according to Colossians we just read, is the image of the invisible God. The great prophet Daniel spoke about the Messiah, Christos, the anointed one, as one who would be like a son of man. He had this encounter with one he called someone who looked like a son of man. And this is a title that Jesus often took for himself. The son of man. I'm the son of man. The son of man came to seek and save the lost. The son of man came to give his life as a ransom for many. He took on his lips the name for this messianic figure that Daniel spoke about. But let's go to Hebrews, because this is written to Jews that were struggling to stay following Jesus. Through persecution, they were thinking of giving up. And whoever wrote the epistle, the letter to the Hebrews, wanted to encourage them not to give up on Jesus because it's all about him. 
So listen to Hebrews 1, verses 1 to 3. In the past, God spoke to our forefathers through the prophets, including Daniel, who spoke of the Son of Man. He spoke through the prophets at many times and in various ways. But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he made the universe. There it is again. The Son through whom he made the universe. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. And after he provided purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. You see the consistency between Colossians and Hebrews? We're going deep today, folks. I hope that's okay. I'm trying to make this as accessible as I can, but we're going deep because it's important. So we see the Son of Man is also the Son of God. But here's an application for you right now if you're struggling with the deep theology. Because unless we get the deep theology, how do we get the wonderful application to our life? Here it is. Go with me to Hebrews again, but in chapter 4. And I'm just going to read verses 14, 15, and 16. Which speak as Jesus as the great high priest. So while you're turning it up, these, these Hebrew Christians are struggling, they're persecuted. They want to go back to the high priest. At least they can see a high priest on earth. What about this Jesus? The author says Jesus is the great high priest. Listen to this, Hebrews 4.14. Since we have a great high priest who's gone through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God. Here it is, not only Son of Man, but Son of God. Jesus the Son of God. Let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Anyone been tempted out there by something today? Or someone? A Bathsheba figure? Or a David figure? He was tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace. God's love, God's mercy, God giving us what we don't deserve, but what we don't deserve. Let's approach that throne, the throne of grace, with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Here's a big application. Jesus is fully human. In one sense, just like you. In another sense, completely different. We'll come to that. He's fully human. And he's really human, just like you. But as we'll see, he's truly human, unlike me and you. We'll get there. But it means this. Are you sad today? Are you lonely? Are you grieving? Has someone who loved you treated you in such a way that it's absolutely smashed your heart? Or maybe the issue is you're frightened because you've got a condition with your heart. Maybe a health issue. Maybe the health of someone you love. Or maybe you're just battling to be the person that you want to be and you're failing, it seems, in your eyes miserably. I've got good news for you. Jesus has been tempted and tested in every way, but he never, ever faltered, failed, or gave into it. And he loves you this much. This much. So I don't think of Jesus hanging on that cross in agony, not feeling the pain because he, he wasn't human. That's one heresy through church history that, that the spirit of Jesus came upon a human being and left at the crucifixion. Well, then he's no saviour, is he? But human Jesus was beaten and flogged and nailed there. 
And human Jesus, with a completely different order of body, physically, was resurrected three days later, defeated Satan, defeated sin, defeated, in some people's view, sickness. There's power in the atonement. And, and he defeated death itself. Hallelujah. Son of man and son of God who can identify with every man and woman here. So what about this third aspect? We've looked at the fact that Jesus was fully human and really human, but what about the fact that I want to suggest he was truly human? What am I getting at? Go with me to the first book of the Bible, Genesis. Genesis chapter 1, verses 26 to 27. Now listen for the unusual plural here for a start. God has already said, let there be light. He's spoken creation into being. The Holy Spirit was there hovering over the water. He spoke through his word, that is Jesus, as we'll see. And here God says, let us, let us make man in our image. So who's God speaking to? The angels? No, God is speaking within the Godhead. One God in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Not three gods, one God in three persons. Let us make man in our image. In our likeness, let us make them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his, singular now, in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. Just to have a good look at the person next to you. Have a good look at each other. That person you've just looked at and probably smiled and giggled at is made in the image of God. You've just seen someone who is made in the image of God. Now we know that Jesus is the full radiance of the glory of God. The full image of the glory of God. But what this means is Jesus is the one who is truly human. You were made to have true humanity. Adam was made that way, but Adam got it wrong. In the garden, Adam and Eve did the one thing they were told not, not to do, and sin entered the world, and they were thrown out of paradise. It's a tragedy. I'm sure they trudged out, weeping and lonely, but God's heart was broken too. And the whole of this love letter is the history and the story of God trying to call man and woman back to himself because he loves them that much. But there's a dignity in every human being. You're made in the image of God. You are fully human and really human, made in God's image. But are we truly human? I want to suggest no, not yet. What do you mean, Clive? Listen out. In the New Statesman in December 2010, 10, Mehdi Hassan wrote an article called The Radical Jesus, and he wrote five lessons from the original revolutionary. And whether you like that article or not, what Mehdi Hassan was trying to say is if only there were more radicals like Jesus in the world, more radically loving, more radically merciful, more radically gracious, more radically accepting of human beings, it'd be a different world. And underlying it, though it's not there in the theology, is this because Jesus was the way we're supposed to be. Adam was given the capacity for immortality. You know, he was told if you eat from that certain tree, you'll surely die. And then he didn't physically, no. But he died and the human span until the advance of medical science got shorter and shorter and shorter. But it's still not much over three score years and ten. 
But Adam and Eve had the opportunity, at least for, in a sense, to live forever. And that was ruined, and so was this beautiful planet, was ruined. But you see, Jesus came as flesh and blood, truly human in that sense. John 1.14, the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. The Word who was with God and the Word who was God, through Mary, was brought into this world, the incarnation. And you remember John Spicer last week, speaking from John 20, 24 to 31, the story of Thomas? He was right, was John, to uplift Thomas, not as doubting Thomas, but Thomas who makes this amazing declaration when he saw Jesus, having missed him on the first appearance of the disciples, sees him a week later, he sees the wounds, he knows it's Jesus, and he, he doesn't stop short of saying this, my Lord and my God. But he was still seeing a physical body, though, a resurrection body. He still knew that Jesus was truly human, but in some way much more. And Jesus offered the disciples true friendship. Imagine the creator of the universe saying, I call you not just servants, but friends. In John 15, that's what he did. You have the chance, and if you're a Christian, you've already entered into it, to be friends with the creator of the universe. Try that next time you're not getting your way in a shop or at the bank or at the post office. Do you know that my friend is the creator of the universe? And just before the little green van pulls up to haul you away, you'll say, let me explain theologically what my pastor was saying last Sunday. Jesus is your friend. And he wants true fellowship with you. Just listen to this. I know you're getting lots of scripture today, but hey, the Bible's a wonderful book, isn't it? A love letter from heaven. Listen to what John, who stood close enough to the cross to see Jesus die, to know that he was dead. I'm one of the first to get to the tomb and see the grave clothes looking like a chrysalis through which a human body had moved out in the resurrection. He saw those grave clothes and he believed. And John wrote this in his first epistle. That which was from the beginning, which we've heard, which we've seen with our eyes. In other words, this is no phantasm. This is no spiritual being. This is no angel. This is no spirit coming upon a human and departing at the cross. We've seen with our eyes. We've looked at and our hands have touched. This we proclaim concerning the word of life. Let me pause. He laid his head upon the breast of Christ at the Last Supper and heard the heartbeat of God. Imagine that. The life appeared. We've seen it and testify to it. We proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we've seen and heard so that you may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son who is radically, fully, really and truly human. Jesus Christ. We, make the, we write this to make our joy complete. I've got another slide but I'm not going there. I'm going to finish with this. Time's gone. We should be full of joy. We should have fellowship with the Son and know that we've got the friendship of the Creator of the universe who was not only really human and fully human but truly human in this way. He was completely uncorrupted by sin. He was tempted in every way yet, yet never sinned. The perfect Savior. And He wants you and I to be just like Him. Now I'll give you the bad news first and then the good news. The bad news is you're never going to be sin-free as I understand the Bible until you go to be with Jesus face to face. 
You'll wrestle with all the things that we human beings wrestle with. Why? Well, because we're really human and we're fully human, but not yet are we truly human. Are you with me? Jesus is truly human. You know, if, if someone walked in that was already at that place, we'd be in danger of falling down and worshipping them. Human beings without the corruption of sin. And one day that's what you'll be and that's what I'll be. But here's the good news. The bad news, we have to wait until that moment. The good news is you are loved until that moment. You are held until that moment. Just the way Sean... You're going to have to stop doing this to me, Sean. Every time I see that guy holding a child, I think of the love of Father God. Don't stop doing it. It's wonderful. In the same way that Sean is cradling his child, God will hold you. God will keep you. Even when you're being tempted, even when you've given in to that temptation like David did, God is never going to leave you. He's never going to abandon you. He's never going to forsake you. So what is our response to this? There's only one response that we could make. It's to desire and pray with all our heart that we will be radical believers in the best sense. Radically following Jesus in whole life discipleship so that he'll transform us from the inside out. Radically loving others, including even our enemies. Doesn't mean there's a time to stand up against our enemies. I've got a military chaplain sitting here. He'll need to do that on occasions and support the guys that do it. But we've got to radically serve people in the church and beyond. We've got to revive the church, reform the church, renew the church, restore the church. Let's pray. I'm just going to ask the band to come back as we have a moment of quiet. I just want to ask you to allow that truth that Jesus is fully, really, and truly human, radically human, to sink in. To sink in so that you'll know that he has been tempted in every way and tested in every way in his humanity, but he never, ever gave in. So he's more than adequate. Father, we come to you in prayer now. We sang a song earlier about you meeting us in our mourning with a love that casts out fear. About the fact you're working in our waiting. We sang that you're the lifter of the lowly. You're compassionate and kind. You surround and uphold us. And Jesus, your promises are our delight. Thank you, Jesus, that you still have a plan to prosper us. Thank you, Jesus, that you haven't forgotten us. Thank you, Jesus, that you're with us in the fire and the flood, that you're faithful forever, that you're perfect in love. And thank you, Father God, in Jesus' name, that you are sovereign over us. Lord, help us to remember that and live accordingly. For your glory we ask it. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.